0: It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome, guys. Appreciate you stopping by. I'm excited to have you here. We're going to jump right into the show with the quote of the day, darkness Cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. By the late, great Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. All right. I'm excited that you're here. We're going to jump right into it. My guest today, Francis Jackson. Francis Jackson is an attorney who specializes in disability law for those seeking veterans' disability benefits and social security disability benefits, a founding partner of Jackson and McNichol. He has been featured on NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox affiliates around the country. He's most recently appeared as a guest of Ben Glass on the Consumer Advocate Show, discussing benefits for veterans and Social Security disability benefits and how his practice allows him to make a difference in the lives of people facing those disabilities. He has been quoted in USA Today and is listed in Cambridge Who's Who's. Mr. Jackson was honored by the National Academy of Best-Selling Authors with a Quilly Award in September of 2012 for his, contr- his contribution to as a joint author to the amazon bestselling book protect and defend where he wrote about protecting one's rights to veterans disability compensation in 2017 mr jackson was inducted into america's most trusted lawyers for his outstanding work in disability law francis jackson welcome back to the show
1: thanks so much Bert. always a pleasure to be here
0: absolutely always good to have you here and uh always glad that you're out there uh what do you call it, protecting our brave men and women once they come home. Um, So let's talk about this. Uh, What is happening with the Blue Water Navy veterans after the big court decision in, uh, I think it's Procopio?
1: Yes, yes, that's the case, Bert. As you may remember, we talked about that. And what's happened is that uh, the court made the decision that Vietnam veterans who served in the Navy what are are referred to as blue water veterans because they served off the shores of Vietnam and and never were on the landmass. Those folks were found by the court to be eligible for veterans benefits for the diseases that are presumed based on exposure to Asian orange, such as diabetes, uh, lung cancer, prostate cancer. Ischemic heart disease and so on. Those folks were found to be eligible for that presumption so long as they served on ships within the territorial waters of Vietnam, so 12 miles basically, <coughs> excuse me, off the coast. And <coughs> the uh, the big issue since then is whether the uh, veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs, was going to appeal that decision. The Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Mr. Wilkie, has indicated that he is not asking the government to appeal. The final decision actually gets made in all governmental cases by the Solicitor General. But given that the Secretary is not pressing for an appeal, it seems likely that the government will not appeal and those folks will, in fact, become entitled to benefits.
0: Man. Wonderful news. Wonderful you- news. And uh, correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken here, but if I remember this, uh what would happen is that these uh these uh, veterans who were on these ships, the aircrafts uh would come in uh you know after doing a, a bombing raid or whatever, and and these guys uh would be in charge of washing and maintaining these uh uh, airplanes and of course these airplanes in a lot of cases were coated with or, uh, ancient, ancient orange which is how they got sick that's
1: that's correct for uh, for many of the veterans um, those on the aircraft carriers in, in addition the um, the folks who served on other ships were exposed in other ways crew members who had been ashore or equipment that had been ashore was transferred to various ships, supplies came ashore, came aboard from ashore, um, even the uh, water that, uh, that they used was uh, potentially contaminated with Agent Orange, and so there are lots of ways that those folks got exposed, and the court ultimately decided that it wasn't practical to do a case-by-case analysis and they would simply hold that the statutory presumption applied to all those veterans who were within the territorial waters.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. Uh, And just to give everybody some perspective that, you know, how sometimes these cases take so long, we're talking, uh, and I I can't even guess uh, how much time, from this has been going through the system? Well, this, this
1: particular case um, took about seven years to get up through the court decision that we're talking about, and this issue has been litigated pretty heavily. Um, the court actually reversed in, this, in the Procopio decision, an earlier decision they made about 12 years ago, Kind of holding basically the opposite of uh, the, the Haas case, so the the issue has been in litigation for a long time these are These are Vietnam veterans after all, and these are folks who served in the uh, primarily the sixties uh, into the late sixties and uh, at the latest early seventies. so you're talking about issues that have been at various stages in the court for a long time, but this particular case is about seven years,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, again, seven years after you waited, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever, 40 years, you know, some of these guys uh, have been waiting a long time. So so this is a a huge deal. I'm grateful that the uh, I'm grateful that the courts finally uh, made a ruling on it, a favorable ruling. And I'm glad that the U.S. government is not is not going to appeal it. Again, we don't have that 100% confirmed, right? I mean, but it looks like he's not going to appeal it.
1: That's correct. It looks that way. All
0: right. All right. Um, So are there any other important developments uh, for veterans in the courts?
1: Well, there are a couple of interesting cases, two really very interesting cases in the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. that's, that are probably worth talking about. One is a, uh, well, actually, these are both class actions, and that, that alone is is an interesting development. The the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, as you know, is a specialized court that only hears veterans cases, and for a long time they held that they didn't have the authority to hear oops claims, uh, what we tend to call class action claims. So, A uh, recent case in which they held that was then appealed to the Federal Circuit, and the Federal Circuit said, You know, after looking at all the statutes and considering the statute that constructed this particular court, we disagree. We think you have the authority to hear class actions, and so we sent the case back to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and that court has been now trying to sort out how you apply the rules that regulate class actions in the very specialized setting that they have where we don't have the typical kinds of class action claims. We tend to think of them primarily in consumer matters, for example, where, um, you know, a whole series of uh, people were overcharged, relatively small amounts that wouldn't justify bringing the case to court. But when you have 100,000 of those people, then it makes sense to bring it to court. So um, there are two of these class action cases, and one is, I think, probably of wider interest. Uh, bears on uh, all the veterans who are seeking medical care and seeking it uh, in emergency situations outside the VA. The National Veterans Legal Services Project in Washington brought a class action and uh, after this, this decision in the Federal Circuit that's going forward and the purpose of the class action was to force the VA to acknowledge that it had misled veterans about their rights when it came to emergency treatment outside the VA system.
0: As hmm. you know,
1: many veterans are eligible for medical care within the VA system. And the folks that are eligible for that care, generally speaking, there are some limitations, but generally speaking, are eligible to have the VA reimburse them for the cost of emergency care that they have to get at a medical facility other than the VA. As you can appreciate, if someone lives a couple hours away from the VA and they suddenly have a medical emergency, it's often more practical and and medically necessary for them to go to a local hospital rather than take the two hours to try to get to the VA facility. So in those cases, what happens is that the VA is obligated generally to reimburse people for the cost of the medical care. What the VA was doing, however, was telling people that if they had any kind of medical insurance coverage of their own, whether it was private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid or a, um, another state-run program, whatever it was, that the VA was not responsible for reimbursing them. Turns out that that's not correct. If you actually work out all the statutory language, the VA is still obligated to reimburse those folks for the cost over and above what the insurance paid, and the, the VA was telling people, literally thousands of veterans, uh, upwards of 10,000, I think, is the, the current number, wow. um, that they that they were not liable to pay for that, and they were refusing to pay. So now you have this class action and the. Veterans Administration has been forced to admit that um, they were misleading people about that, that in fact, even if you have insurance, the VA is obligated to reimburse you for the parts not covered by insurance. And as you can appreciate, lots of insurance coverage doesn't cover the entire cost of emergency room care. So this is a big deal for lots of people. And so that's um, a case that's proceeding in the uh, Court of Appeals right now, There hasn't been a a final uh, adjudication, but the VA has already uh, admitted their error and the issue that's being worked out now is how that's going to be dealt with. And tentatively, they're going to be required to notify all of the veterans that they gave incorrect information to about this and for people who made claims and those claims were denied and not appealed, they're going to reopen the appeal period. So that's potentially important to a lot of your listeners, Um, those of us who are older and uh, those folks who are veterans and needed emergency room care. They may be entitled to reimbursement of, in some cases, substantial amounts
0: of money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, not to mention, if you – if you use your own private insurance, uh, and now you have this ability to be uh, refunded or uh, – re what's the word I'm looking for? Reimbursed? Yeah. Thank you. Reimburse. Uh, yeah, that, that could be huge. And, uh, you know, also I, I could just see some vets saying, you know what, um, just trying to make things simple for themselves. I could see somebody driving – the extra two or three hours uh, so they can be taken care of at a VA facility versus going through all the rigmarole that they're going through, trying to get uh, maybe something, uh, going to a a facility that's nearer to them. So uh, now that kind of uh, streamlines the whole thing. So that's really kind of nice. That is, I think, exceptionally good news. It is.
1: It is. And as uh, as I mentioned, there's another interesting case at the court now, um, which is actually the case that the circuit court ruled on to decide that the Court of Appeals could hear class actions. It's called the Monk case. And in that case, the issue that was raised was the argument that if there's a long enough period of delay in adjudicating a veteran's case, that delay alone amounts to a denial of due process. And they, uh, as I said, had uh, that case. The court denied it, saying they didn't have the authority. It went up to the federal circuit, came back down. And they just had the oral argument on the case now that it's come back down. And one of the things that I thought was oh, I don't know whether you'd call it sad or fascinating, but it's uh, maybe both. The question that one of the judges asked of the VA's attorney was, okay, we all understand that the VA has a lot of claims to deal with, has limited resources, can only do them so fast. We all get that. But is there a point in time when, you would agree that the case has gone on so long that it's a denial of due process. And the attorney for the government said, no, we <laughs> didn't. So, like Allen said, well, how about the case had been going on hypothetically for a hundred years? And the attorney said, no, nope, we, we wouldn't even agree that that's a denial wow. of due process. In, in real-world terms, that probably wouldn't happen. And the judge said, "I understand that. It's hypothetical. What do you think?" And he said, "No, nope, no. Nope, there's no no such thing as a delay so long as that it creates a denial of due process." So, so that's the government's position in the case, and I'm I'm looking forward with uh, with some interest to seeing what the court does with it because I think they're going to find that something less than a hundred years is probably so long as to deny due process. But we'll have to wait and see.
0: Mm-hmm. what's fascinating about that to me is that here's a human being he knows better than a lot of people Francis what some of our men and women are going through and for him to stand up in court and say that there's no, lo- there's no time long enough to deny Due process. That's that's pretty that's pretty ballsy.
1: Yeah, I I, uh, I wasn't going to use that phrase, but yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> I certainly. I agree. mean,
0: you know, and, and and this is the kind of guy, and I'm sorry, this is the kind of, of lawyer person, professional that. Hurts the Did entire give lawyers a bad name It gives lawyers a bad name it really does I mean and, and, you know as a lawyer as a as a fellow human being, you got to be going what you know especially you know especially when he threw out the when the judge threw out the hypo you know the hypothetical hundred years and you know it's just like, come on dude, come on
1: <laughs> yes. I, I agree. I I I just uh, I I thought that one was so amazing that I uh, I wanted to share it with you.
0: Yeah. No. I'm glad you did. It just it just goes to show you. It goes to show you. Uh, to me, this is an extreme example of the roadblocks that our veterans have to deal with. And uh, you know, it's it's an amazing thing. I, I I'm I'm lucky enough to. To to know you and, and 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 I work with a couple other veterans organizations and it just boggles my mind that they have to deal with this kind of junk and you know that the lawyer that we're talking about who, who said those things has not served his country.
1: And that's that's the kind of thing that gives rise to the. There's, there's a phrase in the in the veterans community, um, delay or deny until we die, and and that's uh, that's a uh, fairly cynical assessment of uh, how the uh, the VA approaches a lot of these claims.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Any other uh, developments in the Supreme Court?
1: Yes, actually, there's a, there's a very interesting case in the Supreme Court. Um, I, I know you and I talked a long time ago, I think maybe one of the first times I was on your show, um, about the fact that if you were injured in the military, you're not allowed to sue the government. And right. The, the way that doctrine came up is in a case called Feres, F-E-R-E-S, um, from back in 1950, and and the the issue in the Ferris case was uh, this poor devil um, was a young lieutenant was uh, seriously injured in a fire where there was a an, a, a defective heating system in this um, service-owned building that he was he was in and he was, he was badly injured. Anyway, the issue there was whether he could sue the government for negligence and. The Court held that um, in a in a group of cases um, errors was consolidated some most anyway, the Court held that you couldn't sue the government uh, because there were too many possibilities, if you will, where um, the government employees would be deterred from doing their their duty. Um, if they thought they were risking lawsuits, and the, the particular setting that that they were talking about, um, in addition to the poor guy who got burned, was a was a malpractice issue. So, the case that's come up now is another malpractice case, and it involves a um, uh, I think it's an Army hospital in in Bremerton, Washington, where this Nurse um, who was a service member, actually a lieutenant commander in the Navy, and was assigned to that facility, uh, was there for whenever you were a child and had complications, and they were unable to stop the you know, postpartum bleeding and she literally bled to death over a period of hours. Mm. Um, and so her husband, Mr. Daniels, sued, And, of course, the local district court said, no, the Ferris Doctrine precludes the suit. And the Ninth Circuit said, no, the Ferris Doctrine precludes the suit. And so now we're at the Supreme Court. The interesting part is that the Supreme Court reached out and ordered the Solicitor General to file a response to the uh, petition by Mr. Daniels to have the court review this case. And that's quite unusual. Ordinarily, the solicitor general waives their right to respond in these cases because everybody agrees the fairness doctrine includes bleed suit, and so why should we spend the time uh, responding? So, the fact that the court ordered them to respond is in itself very significant. But what's more significant, the, the court gets about. 7,000, 7, uh, petitions every year for their particular case to be heard. Okay. And out of those, they take about 70, 75 cases, so literally like one in a 1,000. And the fact that they have not only ordered the government to respond in this case, but they have now uh, issued their kind of first round of Petition denials, and they didn't include this case when they dismissed a whole bunch. Um, suggests that they are they may actually hear the case and take another look at the Ferris doctrine. So um, that's really exciting and important news for folks who have been, particularly uh, in this kind of case, subject to medical malpractice while in the service. I don't know that the case is actually going to be heard by the court, but um, people who are much more expert in watching the Supreme Court and reading the tea leaves than I suggest that this one is likely to be considered, um, partly because a couple of the uh, justices, when they were on lower courts, Showed some interest in in the possibility of reconsideration uh, of the the Ferris Doctrine, including uh, Justice Thomas, who, as you know, is is a rather conservative member of the court. And so, it's entirely possible that this uh, this case is actually going to get heard and the doctrine is going to get looked at again, which would be a a very good thing, in my opinion.
0: Sure, no, absolutely. I mean, wow, I'm like stunned the the importance of 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 that doctrine being reversed would be incredible. And here's something else so and you know what, since last time you and I spoke, uh, this is something that's personally happened in my life, and so this is why. This doctrine does need to be reversed, so my daughter, I had twin daughters, and one of them decided to join the national guard and mm-hmm. very proud of her uh, at the same time I'm very scared uh, uh, and and she went in for her MEPS, which is the medical exam something something anyway and it's it's an all day process and she came back with a bruise on her uh, on on her arm that they went to, you know, that they were trying to withdraw blood from that was colossal. It was massive. And the reason that she came back with this massive bruise is that the person trying to draw blood simply had this very vile attitude of, you know, I'm here all day, you're just another arm, and basically had no, uh, bedside manner really just did not care and brutalized her arm. I mean, it, you know, it was just it, my, and my point being is that some people who join the service do it out of love for the country. And, and I will say most of the people that I've met do it for the love of the country. Then you have some civilian people. And this lady was a civilian who are working for the government. Maybe they're, you know, they're, they're doing it for different reasons. But sometimes their attitude is that typical government attitude that you might find at, at a DMB, and sometimes mistakes are made. And sometimes these mistakes, you know, are minor, like, you know, you bruise somebody's arm, but then you have some big mistakes that are made by people who simply did not care. And sometimes it's civilians working for the government. Sometimes it's our own people. Uh, uh, men and women, uh, brave men and women, who are just for whatever reason are being careless, and I think that this doctrine needs to be examined and certainly reversed.
1: I agree. I think it uh,
0: it for exactly the
1: reasons that you've outlined. It does uh, does require another look, and hopefully the Supreme Court will take a hard look at. It.
0: Yeah. No. That that would be amazing. Uh, What about Congress? Any updates from Congress?
1: (laughs) Well, there's there's actually kind of an amusing one. Um, (laughs) The VA, as you know, has has had lots of issues with trying to computerize. They they were probably the the last government agency to uh, be really dealing primarily with paper files, and they they spent a lot of time and effort. and and quite a bit of money trying to computerize things. So they have a a very large project now where they're trying to develop an integrated computer system that works with the Department of Defense so that medical records created in the various service organizations, whether you're talking Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever, um, are integrated into the system that the VA uses so that later after you're out of the service, the VA can go directly to the medical records that were created during service. And that would be a a very good thing for veterans. There's a lot of records being lost and so on, and that would avoid it. So it's a very expensive project that we're talking about. We're talking in the billions. And... Congress has appointed an oversight committee to review the progress here. And so um, they were supposed to have the chief information officer, CIO of the Veterans uh, Affairs Department, come and testify before the subcommittee. And the part that gets interesting is he refused to come, just flat out said, nope, I'm coming. Wow. So it, it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Um, I don't, I don't have any idea where it's all going to go. But I'm real clear that the committee was unimpressed, and I suspect that there will be repercussions. But you never know. It's a, it's a strange time in Washington. It's hard to tell what things lead to lead where. But I don't think the VA got any goodwill out of that. Let's put it that way.
0: You know. This is what's stunning to me. The VA, and everybody probably knows this, stands for Veterans Administration. And, you know, it, it, should, it should almost be called the VO, as in Veterans Opposition or something, because they seem to be sometimes just jerks about helping the veterans, I mean, this is not an unreasonable, and it's not even that hard of a thing to sit down and discuss. I mean, we're talking about records, right? That's right. I mean, to me, there's, there seems to be no reason why they wouldn't come and, and say, yeah, let's, let's, let's figure this out and and this is the challenge for any of the veterans uh administration secretary is that first of all it's the second largest department in the US government it's massive you got thousands of people and tens of thousands of people involved uh, i remember uh you know years ago when i can't remember his name now but you'll probably uh I uh, would call it. Remind me here, uh, McDonald, I think is his name. But he wanted he, he had fired a bunch of people because they were just so bad. And then of course, come to find out, he couldn't fire them because there's a process to fire these incompetent, inadequate individuals. It, it's yeah. just, it's just, man, they just don't make it easy. I guess is what I'm trying to say. They they really make it hard for our veterans. To be administered to. I agree. It's just so crazy. It's well, you know, Francis, I'm always grateful that you guys are out there taking care of our veterans. I'm grateful that uh, that you guys are out there keeping, uh, for lack of better terms, trying to keep the government honest. And what's the best website if an attorney? I'm sorry, if a veteran wanted to reach out and check out about their their uh, veterans' disabilities. Uh, Benefits. What's the best website to go to?
1: Well, the best website to reach us is veteransbenefits.com.
0: Veteransbenefits.com. Veteransbenefits.com. Francis Jackson, as always, my friend, thank you so much for stopping by. My pleasure, Bert. You take care. All righty. Good stuff there from America's most trusted lawyer, Francis Jackson. And the guy just has a big heart for our veterans. I'm grateful for people like him uh, that do the work that they do. Anyway, as always, my friends, thank you so much for stopping by. Let's share this episode with everyone you know. Let's spread the word. Let's help our brave men and women. Some of these brave men and women are your children, Your brother, your sister Maybe they're a parent If they're struggling, if they're suffering in silence Let's get them some help Go to VeteransBenefits.com VeteransBenefits.com Remember my friends You were created to succeed Tune in Monday through Friday Here on Money for Lunch And check out our website At MoneyForLunch.com